All right, well, I have been, um, I have been preaching the past several weeks. And by the way, my thanks to Jesse. I thought Jesse did a great job last week. Really encouraged us. This morning is part four in a series surrounding the concept of zeal. What real zeal is and why God is looking for zeal and how zeal occurs and, and uh, how it works in our life and how desperately we need it. And my, don't we notice how everything that is moving in the world today is like a giant wet blanket to quiet and to kill the zeal of God's people. I don't know about you, but I am flat fed up. I am fed up. You know how they say, I'm fed up to hear. I think I'm over my head. I am fed up. I am fed up with the enemy trying to silence me. I am fed up with the things that try to hold me back and dull me. God has called us to be sharper than a two-edged sword. Hallelujah. And we need to lay hold of the zeal of God. Well, there was a time in ancient Israel, and I've been taking these messages from examples in the Old Testament, and I'm going to do it again this morning. In 1 Samuel chapter 22 is the story of the first king of Israel. His name was Saul. And God didn't want Israel to have a king, but Israel wanted to be like everybody else, wanted to be like the nations of the world. They wanted to have a king just like everyone else did. God wanted to be their king. And as long as they allowed God to be their king, they were blessed he would work with them. He would fight their battles for them. He would provide for them. When disasters arose, God would deliver them. And so they lived as the people of God under this supernatural blessing. And it was awesome. But they wanted to be like everybody else. It's like Peter walking on the water towards Jesus. He was fine as long as he's looking at Jesus. But when he looked around and saw the wind and the circumstances... What did he do? He began to sink. And Israel started to look at the circumstances. And the next thing you know, we want a king. We want a government like the world has. And so they begin to sink. The blessings begin to disappear. They got this king. He was taller than everybody else. He was good looking. He was strong. His name was Saul. But the problem with Saul was that Saul was a treasonous compromiser. For all of his skills, for all of his abilities, for all of his charms and his good looks, he was treasonous, not against the people of God primarily, but against God. And because he was treasonous to God and not faithful to God, he was a bad, matter of fact, he was a horrible leader. He turned out to be a typical, uh, a, a typical uh, um, totalitarian leader. And so the Bible talks about these dark days when Saul was the king of Israel and the blessings of God begin to disappear. And it has an impact on the nation, has an impact on the culture. You see, this pattern didn't just show up in the 20th and 21st century in the world today. This pattern has been there ever since. There have been people grouping together in communities and cultures and societies and cities. And so the Bible talks about this time of darkness is upon the land of Israel. And it talks about how God begins to respond to the cries of the people calling out to him. And the Lord orders a regime change. 
and raises up a young boy named David whose heart is for God, who throughout his life, even though he'll make mistakes, even though he'll sin, he will be faithful to the Lord. So God dials up a regime change and he anoints David to be king, but he's just a teenager. He's just a young guy. God has used him mightily as he went to out and slew Goliath. We all know the stories. But um, the prophet Samuel anoints him to be king, but he can't be king right away because Saul is occupying the office and he's not going to give it up. He is ruling that nation like a tyrant and he's not going to release it. And so eventually Saul finds out about David being anointed and he begins to be jealous and he hates him and he chases him. And David ends up fleeing out of Jerusalem and living in the wildernesses of Israel and along the borders with the Philistines. And so he's living like an outlaw while he's anointed to be the rightful king of Israel. Did you get the picture? Now, I just want to tell you today that any resemblance in the analogies that I share from the scripture to the circumstances of today are purely intentional. <laughs> just so that you know. No, let, there be, let there be no mistake about it. This is deliberate. So 1 Samuel 22, David is hiding out in a place called Adullam and he's living in a cave. The cave of Adullam. And the scripture says that people begin to, men begin to gather to David. Leave their villages, leave their towns and begin to gather to David. And this verse talks about the kind of men that gathered to David. 1 Samuel 22 and 2. And everyone in distress or in debt or discontented gathered to him and he became a commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. So you get the picture. About 400 men that are in distress, in debt, discontented, and let me add, fed up. 400 fed up men left their homes, risked their lives, their families, their fortunes, their possessions, to go join the outlaw David in the cave of Adullam to make him king, to come to him and fight his battles with him and see a regime change and the wickedness overturned and righteousness restored. As I said, if you sense any correlation, it's intentional. So King Saul was a treasonous compromiser. At first he was obeying God, but quickly the anointing God had given him wore off and his self-will rose up because he was stubborn and arrogant and pompous and full of himself and self-willed. And that eventually took over. And that's what ruled Israel. That's what set the policies for Israel. And that's what the people had to live under is the results of an ambitious, self-willed, wrong-minded leader, King Saul. He had no regard for honoring God's commandments. And under his rule, 
Israel was losing its unique blessings and freedoms that came with being a nation under God. Saul was, like I said, a typical totalitarian leader. And the people suffered distress, indebtedness, and discontentment under him. Now, I guarantee you there were more than 400 men who were in debt, distressed, and discontented. There had to be more than 400. And um, Saul used God to prop up his public image and to deceive the people. The only thing he was concerned about is that this religious people would think that God was with him. Other than that, he had no use for God other than just a sheepskin that he could hide his self-willed ways under. What does it take to get fed up? I, I shake my head in disbelief today. I look at the world. I look at people around us. I look at particularly at the church at Christians, and I think, what does it take for people to get fed up? At what point do people say, I've had all I'm going to take? I'm not putting up with evil running my nation, running the world that God has planted me in to be a light and to be the salt. And I pondered this question because it was not a rhetorical question. I wanted to know, what does it take to get fed up? And I realized that it takes seeing distress, indebtedness, and discontentment as a changeable condition instead of accepting it as an identity. Most people passively succumb to indebtedness, distress, discontentment. They figure, well, you know, this is just conditions and there's nothing we can do about them and they embrace them as an identity. But when you refuse to embrace it as an identity and you see it as the results of a government turned against God, you will get fed up. You will no longer embrace it as an identity. You will no longer be passive towards it. And they, they, these 400, these 400 revolted against the idea that this was the new normal. Something rose up in me years ago when I heard Barack Obama address the nation and tell Americans that being in second or third place, losing our leadership position in the world, falling into economic distress, losing our ability to be self-sufficient, our businesses crumbling and deteriorating, that this was the new normal. I knew it's what he wanted, but I knew I sure didn't want it, and I knew I didn't have to put up with it, and neither do you. But that phrase was coined, the new normal, and shoved down the throat of American people to accept it and to believe in their life that they needed to take these oppressive conditions and embrace them as their new identity. People who refuse to do that are capable of being fed up. I asked myself another question. Why only 400? There were hundreds of thousands of people, in it, and they were all living under those conditions. Why did only a minute handful of men become 
fed up. And the reason is, is that most people are indifferent to the causes of distress, indebtedness, and discontentment. They just sort of lower their head and they just live through it. They embrace it. They don't have to like it, but they take it as an identity and they won't fight against it. Probably they feel there's nothing they can do. And that, of course, is the big lie that Satan wants the church to believe, that ours is the business of just coming and secluding ourselves, self-quarantining in a religious buffer zone, and running around and just singing songs and preaching to one another, and while we let the world go to hell in a handbasket, let the wicked rule, let the wicked set the policies, and everybody just gets to live under it. And we have such a passive relationship with God that we just figure, well, God will deal with it. It's God's responsibility to deal with it. But God said, you're his body. He's the head, you're the body, you're the mouth, you're the hands, you're the feet. But the reason there was only 400 is because those 400 were the only ones that recognized that God had dialed up a regime change. They were the ones that believed that God had a change in store. And they saw David as God's answer. And the Bible says, and I, I, I hope that you'll just read into this all that needs to be in it, but it says 400 men gathered at the cave of Adullam. These were men that had businesses. These were men that had families. These were men that left their lives to go and fight for a change they believed their nation desperately needed. You see, until sacrifices like that are made, the devil always rules. His rules go unchallenged, unchecked. And to me, it is just dismal and an abomination that of all people on the face of the earth, Christians are passive in the face of that. They don't see it as their responsibility to speak out for righteousness, to be fed up, and to stand for what is right and what is upright. They became fed up enough to align themselves with David and fight for that change. Whatever, it was, whatever the cost, they were going to pay it. Now the religious order, the church, if you want to call it the church, the religious order of Saul's day, like the religious order and the churches today, like most churches today, they sought conciliation with society rather than reconciliation with God. It was obvious that the discontentment, the indebtedness, the dissatisfaction were evidence that there had been a breakdown in the nation's relationship with God. Because God had promised that if his people walked before him, and walked upright before him that he would be their God and they would be his people and he would write his laws in their hearts and their minds. But the nation was going off the edge of the cliff. It was evident there was no relationship with God. It was evident in the results of the leadership that were going on. And these men could see it. And they knew the only way to turn that around and stop it was to replace that leadership 
with a leadership that God picked. Now remember, God's the one who started this by anointing David. These weren't 400 men who just got together and decided to form a group and let's, let's have an uprising and let's just do something because that's just flesh reacting. But they waited to see. They called out on God. They waited to see and God anointed David. But it would be years before David would take the throne. Years of fighting. Years of patient toiling, waiting, and fighting that fight of faith. But the problem is that the religious order based in Jerusalem, they stayed with the old order. They stayed with the government of Saul. They supported Saul's government because they saw their role as conciliation with society. We are not given the ministry of conciliation. We are given the ministry of reconciliation. Conciliation Conciliation requires appeasement. Reconciliation demands atonement with God. Appeasement is not atonement. If you are going to be a church of conciliation with society, you find out what society wants and you give it to them. You offer them what they want so that they will like you and embrace you. And that's what the church of David's day did conciliation, that these men were fed up and they knew that a church of conciliation would never bring back the blessings of God. But God requires reconciliation. The difference is reconciliation sees what the real problem is. The real problem is sin. And sin took a price. And the price of sin was the blood of Jesus Christ. There was an awful price paid for peace. And there's no peace short of the peace that Jesus brings with his blood that will ever transform a single person, much less a nation. It costs something. And pleasing society does not pay that price. The church needs to get back to understanding a price was paid for salvation and stop being conciliatory towards the world. This is not time for the church to be conciliatory. This is time for the church to be furious. This is not the time for the church to offer pacification. It's time for the church to be outrageous and to be outraged. That's what produced those 400 men. Those 400 didn't stay 400. They grew. God added to them. But it takes an initiation. It takes an initial people that will step out. Hallelujah. Ephesians 5.11, if you're still not convinced that the church does not have a ministry, an assignment to the world to be conciliatory, read what Paul wrote in Ephesians 5 and 11. When Paul said, Take no part and have no fellowship with the fruitless deeds and enterprises of darkness. Take no part and have no fellowship with them. But instead, let your lives be so in contrast as to expose and reprove and convict them. Listen, expose, reprove, and convict. Where is the church today 
when it comes to convicting what is wicked, what is frankly insane and off the charts. The modern church today couldn't convict a prostitute of fornication. They don't have the backbone. There's a wishbone. No reconciliation, just conciliation. There's a phrase that shows up later in the story of David and, and his men from Adullam. As the years went by, and he's being chased by Saul, and Saul's trying to kill him. As the years go by, it becomes evident that, that Saul is becoming more and more possessed by demonic powers and that God's hand is on David. And so more and more men are joining him and David's ranks are swelling. And it's evident that God has ordered a regime change through this servant, David, that he's raised up. And so it talks about that in 1 Chronicles chapter 12. And there's a phrase that I want to lift out of this verse. It's in verse 23 and it says, These are the numbers of the armed divisions who came to David at Hebron to, and here's the phrase, to turn the kingdom from Saul to himself according to the word of the Lord. To turn the kingdom. God wants to turn the kingdom. People are praying. Christians are fasting. People are calling out to God. Men and women and people like you are joining Jesus at the cave of Adullam, pledging their lives, willing to be persecuted, to stand up for God's choice, stand up for righteousness, and allow their lives to be a reproof against the wickedness that is destroying and enslaving our children and taking down our culture and ensuring that darkness will own the future in generations to come in this country if the church doesn't stand up for the righteousness and the grace and the mercy of God. So, turning the kingdom, that was God's answer. I want to turn the kingdom, and those men recognized it. David and his 400 men, listen, because I, I want to go to the heart of a, of a deception that is holding thousands, maybe millions of Christians in a, in a state of compromise in the body of Christ right now. That issue needs to be dealt with. David and his 400 men were not anointed to save their religion. The Jewish faith, the faith in Yahweh, the faith in Jehovah was not at risk. God didn't raise up David to save the Old Testament, to save the law of Moses. God did not raise up David to save the life of the temple, the temple life, the worship life. He raised up and anointed David to save the nation. Just make no mistake about what we're talking about. God wasn't afraid of his faith among his people going away. He was concerned about the nation. And today, God's not afraid that the church is going to go away. God's not raising up men. God's not putting fire back in the pulpit because he's afraid the church is going to go away. He's putting fire back in the pulpit to save a nation, not to save a church. God cares about saving this nation. And I want to prove to you through the Word of God why it matters. Because all my life as a Christian, 
I have heard people say, God cares about the heavenly things. It's the kingdom of God. God is not an American. Well, how stupid can you possibly be to make an ignorant statement like that? Of course God's not an American. Of course God's heart is his kingdom and the government rests on Jesus' shoulders. But to say that God doesn't care about nations, about societies, or about cultures is to deny our very calling. When Jesus said, I don't take you out of the world, but I pray that you'll be kept from the evil. That you're to be the salt of the earth, not just the light of the world, the salt of the earth. And I want to talk about that for a moment. But the, the church is not what God is raising us up to save. It's the nation. We are being called to save a nation today. And I, Christians need to stand up and pick a side. And it is happening you can see that there are sides being chosen. You look at the billboards out in front of churches. You can see some of them have chosen sides. You can look at that, that rainbow flag on there and the, the call to reach out and embrace whatever cultural corruption is going on. For the church to be effective spiritually, we must be salty culturally. Let me say that again. One of the reasons why you can have 10,000 members doesn't make you spiritually effective. If you are going to be anointed and spiritually effective, you must be culturally, not relevant, salty. Jesus did not call Christians to be relevant to the culture. He called Christians to be salt to the culture. The salt of the earth doesn't preserve the culture. It preserves the righteousness of God. It preserves the sanity of his word. It preserves the good things according to the kingdom of God that help people to see the gospel. Listen, Christianity will survive without America. Make no mistake about it. America could continue to be called America, but... It could stop being America, and we're already halfway there. We're already 50% at least in the turnstile where America is no longer America. And the enemies of this country are aligned and ready and already invading through the southern border, wiping out military-aged men by the tens, hundreds of thousands through fentanyl being pushed through our borders with absolutely no effort of the federal government to even lift up a resistance to it. People are coming across the border with drugs, with prostitution, with human trafficking. And when interviewed, they're saying, Joe Biden invited me. The invitation's gone out throughout South America and all the world. The government in power right now is inviting the invasion that is unraveling and setting this country up to be able to be easily walked in and just taken over. Christianity will survive. It always does. You cannot wipe out the Church of Jesus Christ. But America won't survive without Christianity. 
Christianity can survive without America, but America will not survive without Christianity. And if the Christians in America do not stand up and take their place, the America that has been America will no longer be. It'll be something else. Most churches are only interested in being the light of the world. But remember that Jesus said, you are the light of the world, the salt of the earth. Those are not two ways of saying the same thing. Those are two entirely different things. The light of the world is a spiritual, uh, is a spiritual business. It is sharing the gospel, the light of Jesus. The light of the world is what most churches are interested in but they don't want to be the salt of the earth. The salt of the earth is a very physical concept. It means literally being an in-touch, connected, preserving effect, stopping, holding back the rot that would ordinarily take place and break down and rot a society. So something about the mission that God has given the church is referred to as the salt of the earth. But no church that's only interested in being the light of the world is going to be the salt of the earth. You have to make a decision. It takes guts to be the salt of the earth. It takes determination. It takes, when you face the indebtedness and you see it, when you see the discontentment, when you... When you see the distress, it takes not putting your head in the sand. It takes not embracing the new normal, refusing it, rejecting, shouting against it, taking fury rather than conciliation, and standing up and saying, no, we are the salt of the earth. We stand against the rot and the deterioration. Do you think Jesus is going to be proud of a church that set back and let America rot under its feet, culturally, spiritually, while teachers and educators and administrators begin to turn our children, begin to pervert and convert children into brain-dead robots that were incapable of appreciating truth? Truth is, as Isaiah prophesied, is dying in the streets of this country right now. Right now, the statistics show that for years there's been an amazing decline, and now it's a rapid drop of young people that want to have anything to do with Christianity. They see no value in it because the concept of truth has been taken from them. They have been raised, they are victims of an education system that has told them there is no absolute truth. The only absolute truth is your truth. Whatever you feel, whatever you think, that's what truth is. Nobody is going to receive Jesus the way, the truth, and the life who doesn't believe there's any relevance to truth. You want proof of it? Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate. He said, are you a king? Jesus said, I am a king, and those who hear the truth will hear me. Pilate answered and said, what is truth? Indifference. Pilate didn't believe in truth. There was, no, there was no relevance to truth. Truth didn't matter. And so today we have a culture of people who've been told truth doesn't matter. So Jesus is invisible to them. When you tell them Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, well, big deal. So am I. 
I have Oprah truth. I've got my truth. And that's what matters. The church has got to get back to being the salt and not just the light. You see, salt of the earth churches will join David at the cave of Adullam. Salt of the earth churches will do it because that's how they can be the light of the world. Because if the salt of the earth doesn't have an impact, people are going to be blind and no one's going to see the light of the world. You can let that light shine in your services all you want. But the world isn't going to see it if the salt retracts itself and lets everybody go degrade into blindness. Salt of the earth churches support launching their members into public service, into education, into government, into business, into the arts. Pastors that are salt of the earth, pastors, they see the value of their members going out into the community, into politics, into government, into school boards, into legislators, into, as I said, the arts, into business, and becoming influencers and leaders. They encourage it. They're not just interested in adding deacons to the deacon board, Sunday school teachers, not that any of those things are not important, but they see influencing the world as important as edifying the church. And the trouble with most churches, they're too busy edifying themselves, building themselves up. There are methods you can use to build up a church. You could build a city within a city and never reach that city because you're more interested in edifying the church than influencing the world. Salt of the earth churches are as interested in reproving evil as they are in promoting righteousness. I'm so sick and tired of listening to Christians saying, we just lift up Jesus. I love lifting up Jesus. Jesus said, unless I'm lifted up, men won't be drawn to me. We need to lift up Jesus. It's wonderful. But that word just, that's the, that's the, that's the, tolerance, that is the conciliation, that is the word, the pivotal phrase that says, I've drunk the Kool-Aid, this is the new normal, all God wants me to do is just lift up Jesus, I'll just lift up Jesus. But no. Salt of the earth churches know that reproving darkness, reproving evil is just as important as promoting righteousness. The Bible says, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. It does, the sentence doesn't stop there. It's not run into your churches and uh, be holy and celebrate the fact that you don't run around and do those things anymore. See, praise God, Lord, be, be happy with us. The Lord's thrilled with us. No, the Bible says, but rather reprove those things. How many of us stand up, just stand up and say, I'm sorry, I." I don't go along with that. Pastors won't even do it. Why do we expect Christians to do it? Pastors won't even get in the pulpit any longer and talk about what people are supposed to be saved from. Just let Jesus love you. You'll be saved. Saved from what? What am I being saved from? I've come to this church. They can say, I've come to this church for 10 years. I've never heard anybody talk about what 
really I need to be saved from? Why do I, why do I need to be saved? Jesus isn't the savior from sin or unrighteousness. He's just a benefit. He's just a step up. He's, he's just an, he's an additive. Get more mileage out of your life with Jesus. Your best life. Are you listening? Do you, I know all of you have heard this stuff. I know it's run through your mind. Aren't you fed up? Something's not right. Something's wrong. There's a spirit of Saul running America. This is not just in the White House. The government of the United States of America, the federal government, is the biggest organization in this country. There's probably tens, hundreds of thousands of employees in this gigantic, abysmal organization. And something is rotten to the core. Something is wicked. Something is evil because Evil is prevailing. Righteousness is being attacked. I want to read you um, out of Judges chapter 3. Um, when the Lord sent Joshua into the land of Canaan to settle the land, and the land was filled with wickedness and filled with evil. And the Lord told Joshua, I want you to just drive every one of these kingdoms, drive them out of the land, take your possession, take your land, and possess it. So God told them to do it. They started, but they never finished. And the Lord allowed them to settle. And they settled on a compromise. And they allowed a lot of these Canaanite cultures to remain in the land. And I want you to listen to what the scripture says about what the result of that disastrous compromise produced. In Judges chapter 3 verses 1 through 6, these are the nations that the Lord left in the land to test those Israelites who had not experienced the wars of Canaan. He did this to teach warfare to generations of Israelites who had not experienced in battle, had no experience in battle. The Philistines, the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites. These people were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the commands of the Lord that he had given them and their ancestors through Moses. So the people of Israel were given these commands, yet the scripture set goes on to say that the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, Hivites, Amorites, Perizzites, uh, and Jebusites, and they intermarried with them. Israelite sons married their daughters, and Israelite daughters were given in marriage to their sons, and the Israelites served their gods. The new normal. Because the churches won't hold the standard. The churches won't say this is the difference. This is righteousness. This is unrighteousness. And because they didn't become fed up. Fed up with the Hivites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites. Because they didn't get fed up 
with the idolatry that permeated their land. Instead, they allowed it. They said, well, people, you know how they are. They're just going to do what they're going to do. And they didn't see their role. They no longer saw that they had an accountability for the land that God had given them. They had a very modern, humanistic view. Que sera, sera. Whatever they want to do, you know, it's not for me to say. All of these things that Christians tuck their Bible under their arm, march off to church and say, week after week after week. Because they didn't become fed up with the false gods, they became sexually involved with the unbelievers. And then they became spiritually converted to their idols. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. You don't have to read the Bible, certainly the scriptures. If you read history in the Old Testament and in the New, it's all there. It's a formula, it's a strategy. It's like the Trojan horse, works every single time. You can read any book of history. If you paid attention when you went to school, you could read it and learn. There's a, there's a formula that works in cultures. And sexual irresponsibility always has been the Trojan horse that Satan uses to invade and enslave nations. When those differences between what is right and what's wrong, see, in the privacy of people's homes, they're, they're free to do what they want. We're not called to dictate over anybody's life. We're not called to sit in judgment over anybody. But when it comes to setting policy, what's north, what's south, what's east, what's west, what's upright, what isn't upright, we have a right to a say, and we should be saying it. You know that your right to a say is being eroded and taken away. And that's why you see more and more pastors are leading their congregations by not speaking out. They're afraid to speak out. They don't want to lose members. They don't want to lose money. They don't want to lose the friendship of the world. They don't want the mayors or the city council or the business people of their community to not like them. They want to be written up in the local newspapers. They want to be talked about in a favorable way on Facebook. Whatever it is, they don't want to be criticized. And they're teaching their people how to appease and be conciliatory towards a culture that is increasingly antichrist in its heart. I need to finish this. And so I want to bring one more point out. There's a, there's a verse that I've loved for years in the New Testament in, in 1 Corinthians. Paul writes to all of us, and he says, Consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were noble of noble birth. But God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Everyone say, shame the wise. God has chosen what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is despised in the world, even those things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That statement is opened up with Paul saying, consider your calling. And so I want to put that before you today as a Christian. Consider your calling. When the Lord looked to save you, when he drew you, was God drawing the valedictorian, 
Was God drawing the person with the highest skill level, the greatest education? The Lord moved among the slave populations of ancient cultures. God moved among common people, the whosoever will. And when those that were bidden were too busy with their important lives to come to the dinner that Jesus had prepared, what did he say? Go into the highways and hedges. Find the halt and the maim and the blind and get them to come in. Because God can do more with an appreciative person who's been set free from bondage than somebody who thinks they're all that and God got a good deal when he saved them. The Bible says that God wants to shame the wisdom of this world, and Christians won't even stand up and refute the wisdom of this. We won't even speak against with much less shame. God's, do you know why God is not moving powerfully through churches today, no matter what size they are? Because they will not shame the wisdom of the world. They want to be approved by the world. They want to be talked about. They want the professors. They want the elite to comment on them, to approve of them. They want the approval of those that God wants to shame. We have come to a time when God wants to shame the wisdom of the world. And it's right there. I just read it to you. In 1 Corinthians, God wants to shame the wisdom of the world. That's the hour we're at. That's the time we're at. This is a cave of Adula moment, and God will do it. He'll do it through you if you're bold with the understanding that God has given you. You don't need a 12-year education. You don't need a diploma from Yale University. I pastored at Yale University for five years, and I can tell you it's, they're not all that. I didn't say I went to Yale for five years. I pastored there for five years. God wants to shame the wisdom of the world because they trust in their wisdom. And the wisdom of the world is just like the wisdom that's driving the White House right now. They zig when they should zag. Everything wrong that could be done, they do. And everything right that ought to be done, they avoid and they don't do. That is the insanity of the wisdom of the world. And where is the church standing up and shaming the wisdom of the world? We shame the wisdom of the world not by calling names, not by attacking. We do it by standing up and speaking what God has given us an understanding of. Jesus is Lord. The government is on his shoulders. I'm sorry, but that isn't right. I'm sorry, but that isn't true. This is what's true. God has given you an understanding. <clears throat> Do not discount it. You are qualified to stand up in public and speak the truth, not your truth, God's truth that he's given you an understanding about. Speak it, and the Holy Ghost will back you up. The world will be affected by people who allow the simple truth that God's given them who are bold enough to stand up and speak it and let the Holy Ghost back up what they say. Those that have ears to hear, even Jesus, who could have talked anybody into anything. There was nobody smarter than Jesus. Yet he spoke very simple things. And he said, those that have ears to hear, let them hear. Well, don't, uh, what? 
why don't you explain a little more, try to convince him? No, because a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. No. God's not trying to convince the wisdom in this world. He's trying to shame the wisdom in this world. Because their wisdom is killing them. They need the wisdom of God. They need the simple truth of people like you who believe the truth of the gospel of Jesus. Psalm 119 and 104 says, Through your precepts I get understanding. Therefore I hate every false way. You know why you're, you feel fed up? Because the precepts of God, you love them, they're in your heart. And they cause you to hate every false way. Why should I hate Oprah's truth? Because it's taking people to hell. That's why I hate it. Because it's ruining and polluting and corroding souls and destroying minds. That's why I hate it. That's why you should hate it. That's why you should be fed up. You've got the truth that brings life. You have an understanding that can make people live. Go out into the world and stand against this foolishness and let God shame them. You know how they get shamed? You'll stand in front of that crowd. You'll speak that word. They can say things. They can laugh at you. As you walk away, two or three will walk out of that crowd and they'll follow you. Tell me more. Tell me more. Why? Because they had ears to hear. God will give them ears. I watched it when I pastored at Yale for years. We ended up we had professors, we had doctoral students, we had uh, um, divinity school, mostly med school students, as members of our church, along with a whole bunch of street people, people from every walk of life and culture, because we spoke what God had given us an understanding about, and didn't, we didn't even try to speak the world's language. Could care less. God wants to shame the world's language. Stop trying to sound like the world. Stop trying to impress them. You've got what can change the world. It's time you get yourself down to the cave of Adullam. Somebody say, praise the Lord. God has given you an understanding, and that understanding is in you, and it is fed up with the delusions and lies of Satan ruling America. God has anointed you to save a nation. Don't worry about Christianity. Christianity is fine. But this nation needs people who will stand and speak the truth and fight for it. It's time to be the salt and not just wanting to go to church and be the light. It's time to join Jesus at the cave of Adullam and turn a nation back to righteousness. Somebody say praise the Lord. If you feel this down inside, somebody say amen. amen. Come on, I want you to stand with me this morning. Ooh, got quiet in here this morning. I was figuring people would be shouting and carrying on and amening and everything. But I, that's all right. Just take it in. Just take it in and let the Lord speak to your heart. Hallelujah. Our altar call this morning is going to be one of just laying our heart out before God. Lord, if there's something in this message that's for me, show me. Show me where I stand. Show me what you want me to do.